Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is the passage I'm going to read. There were two men in a village who had a conflict with each other, and so they decided to go to the town sage to try to get it worked out. So the one man went to the sage, went to his home, and uh, explained him the situation, and the town sage after listening to his side of the story, said, you are absolutely right. And then the second man, with his side of the story, also went to the sage, went to his home, explained the situation, and the sage said to him, you're absolutely right. And then the sage's wife, who happened to be at home at the time, overheard the conversations taking place, uh, confronted her husband and said, you know, I just heard these two guys come into your home and explain to you their situation. They said exactly opposite things, and you told them both they were absolutely right. That's impossible. And he looked at her and said, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes resolving conflict can be really difficult. Uh, It's perplexing. Uh, Sometimes it seems like everybody's got a point. And sometimes it seems the best way to resolve conflict is just to say, everybody's right. Uh, To just kind of withdraw from the situation and refrain from making any kind of judgment or evaluation on what is taking place. Well, we are, as you know, going through a sermon series here at New Life on peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers is the name of the series. We're looking at Scripture first and foremost, but also taking some guidance from this book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And uh, by the way, this book is available for sale. We sold a couple of them last week. Did we get more in? So there are more copies of this book on our book table if you want to read in more detail and depth about what we've been talking about. Um, But we started last Sunday, and we're just going to take three Sundays to deal with this, so today and next Sunday as well. But as review last week, we began this whole pursuit of peacemaking by looking at Jesus' command to take the log out of our own eye first. When we notice conflict between us and another person, we feel that somebody has sinned against us. What Jesus says is the first thing we ought to do is deal with our own faults before we're eager to go confront people with their faults. And often it's a log in our own eye, in comparison to a speck that's in another person's eye. Sometimes we find that our issues are bigger than theirs, and we end up having to confess sin to the person. But uh, this week, uh, we're taking this a step further. After the log is out of our own eye, and we notice that the person with whom we are in conflict is still in sin, you and I as Christians, as believers in Jesus have a responsibility to that person. We have a responsibility to go and gently restore that person to fellowship with his or her Savior. And Matthew 18 is a passage in which Jesus gives us very specific directions about exactly how to do that. And so that's what we're going to read 
together here. Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. I'm going to read all the way to the end of verse 20. We're not going to deal with everything in this passage, but please stand now for the reading of God's Word as I read this passage to us, the words of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Lord, we ask that you'd open our eyes to behold the truth, the grace, the mercy uh, that is in your word for us, your people. Do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the peacemaker um, gives a pretty helpful overview of um, the different ways that we can approach personal conflict. There's a graphic in the book called The Slippery Slope, which is on the screen here before you. Uh, In the middle, you will see peacemaking responses. So these are options that we have uh, for making peace with one another, for being peacemakers, as Jesus called us to do. Over to the left, I'm sorry if you can't read that very well. I know it's a little blurry, but over to the left, we can overlook offenses. We talked about that last week, just being willing to not quite be so sensitive to overlook minor offenses. Um, And there's a number of other options there, negotiating, mediation, uh, accountability. So those are the proper responses to conflict that we can use to seek peace between us and another. Now, if you go over to the right, you'll see what are called attack responses. Now, we could call those peace-breaking responses, Um, assault, litigation, and then all the way to the right, you see murder, which would be the most extreme form of peace-breaking, right? And in James last week, we saw that that's where the quarrel can eventually lead. Uh, We desire, we don't get what we want. Um, so we quarrel, and in some cases it even leads to murder. So peacemaking in the middle, peace breaking on the right. Now you go all the way to the left, and you have what's called escape responses. You see the word denial, <coughs> flight, and then the most extreme form of an, of an escape response would be, would be suicide, uh, just removing yourself from, from the situation. But another word we could use to describe the escape response is peace faking. Uh, We've got peacemaking, we've got peace-breaking, and we've got peace-faking. The sage in the story that I told you at the beginning was a peace-faker. Everybody's right, not willing to say that anybody is wrong. And all of us probably tend to one degree or another to each of these categories. Some of us are by nature peacemakers, some of us are peace-breakers, a little harder to get along. Some of us are peace-fakers. We can't stand conflict. We avoid it at every turn. We pretend that everything is okay when it's not. And we nurse secret grudges deep in our hearts 
that end up manifesting themselves in a number of ways that are destructive to personal relationships. And so Jesus gives us these words here in Matthew 18 to, to encourage us, to incite us um, to move beyond that. And I mentioned last week that getting the log out of your eye is not easy and um, gently restoring people <laughs> to relationship with Jesus and to obedience to him is also not easy. But in the grace of God, we are given these directions. So let, let's look at this, see what Matthew 18 and some other passages have to say about how we can avoid being peace fakers. First thing is just this, we need to approach the person gently. Someone's in our life, there's conflict, uh, there's sin involved. What Jesus says very clearly here is that we are to approach that person. You see that in verse 15? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go to the person. Now, there's a principle that kind of runs through this passage, and that is that we should seek to keep the circle of people involved in the conflict as small as possible for as long as possible. So in other words, you, you, someone's offended you or you think somebody's in sin, the first response is not to go tell everybody but that person. The first response is not to gossip. Nor is the first response to go tell the pastor <laughs> or, or your elder. Now, certainly there are cases when that might eventually become needful, but what Jesus says here is that the first thing that you should do is go to the person. And notice also that Jesus is saying, if your brother sins against you, so we're talking about sins that are committed against, uh, from one Christian to another. An unbeliever sins against you in this way, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not within this context here. So as we hear this, as we see this command from Jesus, that there are a couple of extremes we can fall into. Now, there's some of us who are actually a little too eager to do this. <laughs> um, you know, it's a bad sign if you're a person that gets some kind of strange delight in confronting people. Uh, in fact, uh, probably a healthy response to this is the person who doesn't want to do it but is willing to do it anyway in obedience to what the Bible says. I mean, that, that's kind of a healthy, balanced response. There are those who look for problems. They have a certain joy in getting into arguments. They kind of are self-appointed moral policemen and women running around looking for sins to point out. There's heresy hunters, people who are seeing a heresy under every rock and always very quick to bring it up. Well, um, the Scriptures actually speak to this in, in a couple of ways. Here in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, Paul says, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but are busybodies. <laughs> and Peter says something similar here in 1 Peter 4.15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, these words, busybodies and meddler, what they're talking about is people who like to pry into other people's affairs, people who like to mind other people's business. There's a warning against that in, in Scripture, to not be too quick, to not be too eager to confront and challenge others. But I think probably the problem for most of us is that we're too reluctant. 
That's what most of us do. We're too reluctant to do what Jesus is commanding us to do here, to go and show a person his or her fault. Now, why is this? Well, I mean, some of the answers, are, I think, are pretty, pretty obvious. I mean, nobody likes tension, right? I mean, nobody wants to get into an argument. Nobody likes the conflict that often ensues when we confront somebody. Most of us don't take criticism very well. And when we go and talk about this, we're likely to get some defensiveness and maybe some criticism pointed back at us. It could be that we'll drive the person farther away, and now things are worse than they were to begin with. And uh, we just have enough stress in our lives, and we're not looking for more. And so those are very understandable reasons why we won't do this. I think maybe a stronger reason why we're reluctant to do this is because of a certain number of cultural pressures that are on us. And you hear me mention these quite often as I seek to examine the Scriptures in light of our culture, but, you know, our culture has no room for this kind of thing, what Jesus is telling us to do, to go and point out to somebody their sin. I mean, that is anathema in our culture. It's the cardinal sin in our culture. Um, Our culture lives by certain mottos like live and let live and mind your own business. And we even saw this in the news just this um, last summer with Pope Francis. You might have seen this where um, he commented on the question of whether gay men should serve as priests. And um, Pope Francis, here was his phrase. You've heard it a million times. This is what he said in regard to that issue. Who am I to judge? Have you ever used that before? I, you know, how can I speak into this person's life? How can I make this or that determination? Who am I? Who am I to judge? Well, what is Jesus saying here in verse 15? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Doesn't that necessitate some kind of a judgment? To make a determination that somebody is in sin, and not just to keep that a private determination, but to actually then respond by going to the person? Well, some, uh, or some of the reasons why we have a problem with this is because of, of the way we look or, or think about this idea of judging or going and showing someone his fault. Uh, you know, if by this we mean go and condemn that person, you know, go and um, in a spirit of self-righteousness and superiority and put that person in his or her place. You know, if that's what we mean by judging, well, of course, nobody wants that. Nobody wants someone doing that to them, and hopefully none of you want that kind of attitude in your own life. Uh, when people are averse to this idea of judgment or being confronted, this is what they're reacting to generally. Or, in addition to that, a sense of hypocrisy that people see in Christians. That is, Christians are coming to point out sin in their lives when they've got all kinds of logs in their own eyes, right? So that's why we talked about what we did last week. It's so important to start with getting the log out of your eye. Or you will be rightfully called a hypocrite if you're going to go pointing out sin in other people's lives and you haven't dealt with your own. But we don't have to look at judgment in this way. There is a more positive way to to look at this. I mean, think of it in terms of just making a mature evaluation 
of what is going on in somebody's life to use spirit-led discernment and then to approach that person in humility and love and sensitivity and gentleness out of a genuine love and care for them. And we get this more in Galatians 6 where Paul says this, and this is where the title of the sermon comes from, Gently Restore. Paul says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So notice, it doesn't say you who are spiritual should go and put him in his place. It doesn't even say you should go and confront him. I mean, the Scripture sometimes uses strong words like rebuke, certainly, but we're not talking confrontation. Uh, It doesn't say to go shame the person or to go scorn the person. Um, It's go restore the person. And, And that word actually means this. It means to cause to be in a condition to function well to bring a person into a place in their lives where they're functioning as God has intended them to function. You're helping people live well when you confront and challenge them in this way. So this is an act of love. This is an act of care. This is an act of service that Jesus loves us so much that he would put people in our lives who are willing to restore us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. You know, the tenderness. You know, oh, I don't, I, I'm so tender and so sensitive that I'm not going to confront anybody. Bonhoeffer says that's a cruel thing. If you're looking at somebody in his or her sin and you, you won't approach that person about it, that's a cruel thing. Nothing can be more compassionate, on the other hand, than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Well, that's what Jesus is, is talking about here in Matthew 18, verse 15. Your brother sins. Go and tell him his fault. Just between the two of you in this small group to begin with, we're keeping things as um, private as possible. And so the question is, friends, do, do you love people enough? Do you care for people enough? Your family members, your friends, your brothers and sisters here at New Life, Do you care for them enough to go to them and restore them when they're in sin? That's the question. It's not are you so prideful and superior and judgmental. Do you love them enough to do that? Well, we get to the second part, speaking the truth in love. Because here's the deal. When we go to somebody to confront that person in his or her sin, the the problem is that in order to do that, in order to restore a person, We have to open our mouths. We have to use words. And as soon as we start using words, here's where everything comes apart, right? (laughs) I mean, here's where it all goes south. We might have the most pure and holy motives, but, man, we get to talking about it, and things come out of our mouth that are not what we intended, and trouble sets in. Um, James reminds us this, warns us about this. In chapter 3, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, they can be tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but nobody can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, and it's full of deadly poison. Now, that's, that's a healthy reminder for us to all keep in mind. You know, we've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We've got to put these things together. Jesus is saying, go and talk to a person. You know, you read this from James, and you almost don't want to say anything to anybody at any time. And, and it is true, as you've probably heard, there's a reason why we're given two ears and one mouth. And have you ever also thought that our tongue is like double-fenced? I mean, not only do we have teeth before our tongue, but we have lips in front of our tongue too. So God, by His design, has, has set up our mouths in such a way that our tongue should be restrained and held back. So you see this from James, and it does. It, it makes you think, I, I, don't, I just, you know, I'm not going to say anything, because anytime I say anything, it just, it just goes awry. But that's, you can't do that, because Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you've got to go tell him his fault. So we've got to try to do both of these things <clears throat> somehow. Well, Ephesians 4 gives us some direction here, speaking the truth in love. Paul says, we are to grow up in every way into him. Speaking the truth, okay, someone's offend, offended you, you're in conflict, you're going to go tell them his fault, speak the truth, what does Paul say? Speak the truth in anger, speak the truth in frustration, speak the truth in coldness, speak the truth with a nasty frown on your face so they know how displeased you are. No, it's speak the truth in love. So there's a way to do this. There's a way to speak in a way that is motivated by love. Well, this kind of begs a whole other question, which is when should we speak? When is it time to, to talk? Uh, last week we heard that um, we should be willing to overlook minor offenses. And so this is a really difficult question. How do we distinguish between minor and major offenses? Because what Jesus is saying here is if your brother sins against you. So what we're talking about is a clear and habitual sin in light of what we know to be true in God's Word. So that means you know, if your feelings have gotten hurt, if you have a personality conflict with somebody, you got, you're just, you know, one's an introvert, one's an extrovert, whatever. You have just this bad mix, and, you, you know, you might have trouble getting along. I, I don't, you know, you got to be careful about just wanting to jump out and being too eager, again, to confront everything. What we're talking about is clear and habitual sin. So it's obvious, it's clear from what Scripture teaches, but it's habitual, it's ongoing. And at that point it might be time to go and speak. So the Peacemaker book gives four criteria. Here's how you know when a sin is too serious to overlook, when it's dishonoring to God. Now, of course, all sins, to some degree, are dishonoring to God, aren't they? But, um, you know, there are some sins that are more minor than others. There are some sins that malign the reputation of the church, some sins that are a little more public, some sins that make Jesus look bad, um, when there's some kind of public mal maligning 
of God's reputation or the reputation of the church, the witness of the gospel. That's too serious to overlook. When it damages your relationship, you, you can't get past it. Um, you wake up the next morning and it's still gnawing at you. Days later, weeks later, it's still gnawing at you. And now you're avoiding the person when you see them out in the foyer in the church. They're coming down the hall, you're going the other way. You're not going to look them in the eye because you're mad at them. And there's this grudge in your heart. It's damaged your relationship. There's a distance between you and the person now that wasn't there before. Too serious to overlook. When it hurts others, you see a person committing a, a particular sin that is threatening others. So obvious examples here would be verbal and physical abuse. When a person is abusing somebody, a family member or somebody else, or maybe somebody who's um, intoxicated, driving the car with family in it, and the guy is drunk and endangering people, you know, those kinds of things, sins that are endangering people. And then when the sin hurts the offender as well. Uh, It's a little more ambiguous, but when someone is getting into a sin that is severely harming that person, uh, out of love and care and service to them, we should go to them. So, I mean, look what James 5 here says. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and then someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, it requires a lot of thought, a lot of counsel, a lot of prayer, a lot of reflection, a lot of time in God's Word to make the decision about when you should go to a person and, and when you shouldn't. So, let's say you get to the point, okay? The sin is too serious to overlook. I've got to go. I've got to deal with this. I've got to confront this person. Now I've got to speak. And I've got to try to speak in love. So, how do we do that? Well, just some examples here, some um, practical applications, suggestions for how to speak well. And there's a number of them in the book. I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, I don't have them on the screen either. But here's the first one. Choose the right time. It's very important. When you go to somebody, be very careful about the time and place that you choose. You know, when the person is in the midst of a very emotionally difficult time and that person's life is in upheaval, uh, maybe at the end of the day, spouses, when you're both tired or one or the other is really busy and stressed by something, these are not the time to go there. In public, people are, are listening, people are observing, the kids are around. You know, choose the time and place very carefully. Second thing, talk in person. I think what Jesus has in mind here in verse 15 is a face-to-face relationship. If your brother sins against you, go. Go to the person and tell him his fault. In other words, email, text, Facebook, bad way to do this. And, you know, that sounds funny, but I can't tell you how many people I know who try to handle this stuff that way. And, and it is so destructive. You are asking for trouble. You are asking for misunderstanding. Talk in person. <clears throat> Third, be clear. Be clear. How many conflicts do we get into that are the result of misunderstandings? Someone says one thing, someone says another. It's misinterpreted. 
the person digs in his or her heels, there's conflict that might go on for decades because neither would go to the other person just to clarify what was meant. How many times have you been mad at someone for not calling you back and then you find out, well, they'd lost their phone or... You know, someone walked by you and ignored you, and you found out, well, they just heard that their grandmother died. I mean, so often we make these quick judgments about people without inquiring, without bringing clarity to the situation. If you're going to go talk to somebody, here's how Ken Sandy says it in the book, it's not good enough to communicate so that you can be understood. You should communicate so clearly that you cannot be misunderstood. It's very important to do this well and to speak in love. One, two, three, four. The fourth one is kind of connected to this. Plan your words. Think carefully about what you're going to say. Write them out beforehand. Put them down on paper. Share them with somebody. Bounce them off somebody. Rehearse it. Speak it out loud in the car while you're alone and listen to what your words sound like because if they kind of if, if they sound sharp to you, I guarantee you they're going to sound sharp to the other person. Plan your words. Engage rather than declare. You get together with the person and you sit down. Don't just launch into it. The first thing out of your mouth is, you sinned against me and I am holding a grudge against you. Enter into it more indirectly, and that's why we had um, Mandy read that passage from 2 Samuel. That's exactly what Nathan did. Nathan didn't just come to David and say, you committed adultery with Bathsheba, you need to repent. What Nathan did is he told a story about this guy who (coughs) who had a lamb that was taken from him and killed so that he could touch David's heart and bring him into this situation so he could identify emotionally with what was going on and then see that he was the man. So engage rather than declare. You might consider being creative in this. Be quick to listen is another way. Yes, you are to speak, but be willing to listen. Ask lots of questions. When the other person talks, stop. Listen. Hear the person out. This shows that you value the person, and it will also help to avoid misunderstanding because you're hearing what the person has to say. I had a friend from seminary, I remember him telling this story that he was counseling somebody in his church and um, he would have these discussions and he said that the guy he was counseling told him once, he said, you know, Mark, um, sometimes it's frustrating talking with you because I get the feeling that every time we're talking, you're trying to hit a home run and all I want to do is play catch. Isn't that the case sometimes? We go into these discussions with people and we just want to hit it out of the park. We just want to blow them away. And it could be that some give and take might be necessary to kind of pave the way. And then the last thing is let your words pour out grace. Let your words pour out grace. Proverbs 22 says, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Are your words filled with judgment and condemnation? Or are there grace in your words? And you want to know the way you get grace in your words? You want to know the way you breathe out grace? You breathe it in. You regularly breathe it in. You meditate on the cross. You go to the gospel. 
the vilest offender, as soon as he believes that moment from Jesus receives, when you see yourself as the vilest offender and acknowledge that your sins have been forgiven because of the penalty that Jesus has paid for you, that's going to soften your heart. But when you think of yourself as this holy, righteous person who has it all together and you just can't figure out how everybody else can't seem to live like you, then your words are going to be full of judgment and condemnation. You're going to drive people away, and this is not going to go well. Breathe in grace. Go to the gospel and speak the truth in love. Well, the last thing that Jesus says is this. Take one or two others along. Now, there's a lot to be said here, and we're running out of time, so we can't go into this in in much detail. But if the conflict continues, even after you've done what we've talked about here so far, verse 16 says this, if he does not listen, take one or two others along. So you see that phrase there, if he does not listen? It's again in verse 17, he refuses to listen um, to the church. Um, that's, that's the operative phrase there. If the person is refusing to listen, the person is uncooperative, won't budge, digging in his or her heels, then it might be time to go on to the next step. So you've had the private conversation. The person is not responding. What Jesus says you should do then is go and find someone else to go with you and then talk to the person about this sin. And, you know, these directions are very clear and yeah, it just unfortunately it just doesn't happen very often in the church. And about this time, generally what we do, we talk to the person, they don't respond, and we just say, Well, there's nothing else I can do. I did what I can. And we give up. But Jesus says, No. Find someone to go with you. You can do this by mutual consent. You can talk to the person. Hey, can we come up with an idea of someone who can help us, a mediator? Or if that person isn't interested in that, you might have to go on your own initiative. Find a friend, a friend of maybe both of you, someone that the other person respects. You might have to go to an elder or a pastor, so there is an appropriate time to talk to your pastor or your elder. You should refrain from giving details to this person. You don't want to bias this person, because if the person that you're talking to sees that you're bringing someone who already has heard your side of the story, that's not going to go well either. But... Jesus says, this is the next thing to do. So you bring a person along with you, and then you observe all these things we've been talking about so far and the way we speak and the way we approach a person gently with an intent to restore and to care and to serve. The person still digs in his hills. The person still isn't responding. The person still will not cooperate, will not repent, will not confess, will not acknowledge <clears throat> the sin. What Jesus says then in verse 17 is tell it to the church. In other words, and I don't think that means Sunday morning you just stand up in your chair and announce this sin that somebody is uh, caught in. No, I think what this means is go and tell the leaders of the church and trust it to the leadership of the church to, to deal um, with this situation. And if the person still doesn't respond, what we're told to do is treat the person basically as an unbeliever. That's what verse 17 means. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat the person as if the person is an unbeliever. You know, it doesn't say treat the person because we now know that he or she is an unbeliever, because we don't know that. We don't know what's going on in a person's heart. Treat them as if they're an unbeliever because they're acting like one. And so it could get to the point where a person, again, in clear, habitual, stubborn, ongoing, unrepentant sin after all these steps are taken it could get to the point where that person needs to be expelled from the community. 
excommunicated. So that, that can happen. And, uh, you know, talk about a countercultural thing to do in this culture that talks about inclusion. What Jesus says is there is a place for exclusion. There are some times, there are some occasions when that will be necessary. Maybe some of you have seen that practice in a very poor way. You probably have. Maybe some of you have been hurt by that in your own life. Um, you are entitled to an apology for that. Uh, but it doesn't negate what Jesus is telling us is the case. This is how conflict should be dealt with in the church. But here... <clears throat> is some encouragement that Jesus gives us here in verse 20. And uh, what Jesus says is, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Isn't that interesting? We've used that verse many times. It's a very popular verse. Did you, did you know that that verse is in the context of church discipline? I mean, I think it certainly applies in other places. We are gathered. Jesus is here with us. Yeah, that's true. But what Jesus is saying is, no, we're two or three gathered where two or three are gathered for the purpose of dealing with an unrepentant sinner, where two or three people are getting together in obedience to God's word to challenge somebody and to restore a person who is wandering from the faith, Jesus says, I just want you to know this is hard, I know that, and so I want you to know I'm with you in that. I am in the midst of that. I bless that. That's what Jesus is saying. I will be with you, and that's his encouragement to us to do this. Well, it's interesting how often we can see that result. I heard a story. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who was telling me this is someone that you don't know, and it's just not in our presbytery or anything, but he was saying that there was a, a pastor in his presbytery who um, was committing adultery, seeing another woman, left his wife. The, the pastors in the presbytery confronted this man about this, challenged him, just as Jesus is saying, and the guy just said, look, I'm not happy with my wife anymore. I'm more happy with this woman, and this is what I'm going to do. He was unrepentant. And so they defrocked him. So he's not a pastor anymore. So they followed these steps. But here's what happened. That, that man had some members of his family who were not coming to church while he was a pastor. They were not going to church. But when they witnessed the way the presbytery dealt with that situation they started coming to church. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that that would be the thing that would make people never want to come back? Oh, you defrocked somebody, you know, for a sin? I mean, that's a more public sin. I think most people want to see that dealt with. But um, that's why Jesus says, I'll be with you. I'm going to bless this. Uh, that was dealt with well, and it ended up bringing people into the church. So um, we're about ready to come to the Lord's table. And it would be appropriate for us right now to take a few moments. We normally greet one another at the start of the service, but this would be a good time to greet one another, right, as an expression of our love, the unity that we have in Christ. So let's do that.